Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. A microscopic fleck of molten tin gets dropped in front of this laser beam that's powerful enough to cut metal 50 times a second. The individual atoms of the tin get instantaneously heated to 1 million degrees Celsius. And this smashes all of the electrons away from the nuclei. Those electrons then start interacting with each other and the newly free nucleus of the tin atoms. And they start pumping out extreme ultraviolet light that can be used to cut patterns into silicon. And those patterns, when they're all summed together, those patterns do the math that draws your Instagram screen. You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Hal Hodson, and your favourite Ken Kukier has kindly lent me the controls of the show this week for a special episode. And today, we are going to be talking about making chips. Chips are the most complex devices humans know how to manufacture. The secrets of how to make them are fiercely guarded. If you read science fiction, it's not fiction anymore. It is science. It's a process dominated by a few gigantic companies, which have become indispensable to and hotly fought over by the most powerful economies on the planet. You know, I think a lot of these firms are uh, afraid for their own safety of now depending on American supply. And even as the pandemic has exposed vulnerabilities in this system, the race to dominate the world of chips could just be beginning. Dependency on semiconductors is only going to increase. To try and make sense of one of the most technologically complex and politically fraught industries in existence, I'm joined by The Economist's resident semiconductor expert, Tim Cross, our technology editor. Tim, welcome to Babbage. Hi, Hal. Good to see you, and uh, nice to see you in the throne for a change. (laughs) In the throne? You're on thrones, aren't you? Yeah, I will try and not get too seduced by the heady power (laughs) of it all, and uh, I am am thinking about allowing Ken to come back next week without a fight. But um, Babbage has kindly lent me the ability to nerd out on one of my favourite and, I would argue, most pressing topics that there is, and go really deep on chip making. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. And I want to start by giving our listeners a, a sort of high-level sense of why, why on earth are we even talking about this? Why is anyone caring about this as much as they are? So I'm going to just retreat into a famous cliche and say, you know, if data is the new oil for the world economy, then chips are kind of like the internal combustion engine. So if you have a big pile of oil, you can't really do anything with it. You need a machine that will, that will like, you know, burn it and make it do useful things. Uh, a chip is it's it's the same thing. It's it's an electronic circuit. It manipulates data. It does all kinds of of you know difficult maths as fast as possible, uh, and it turns you know raw data into useful information. Anything you own that is an electronic device these days probably has a chip in it somewhere, and so these things increasingly just underpin pretty much the entire global economy. They're also very very hard to make. 
uh, and the most advanced ones are probably the most complicated devices that humans make anywhere. And for that reason, they're getting sucked into this whole sort of political vortex about strategic rivalry between America and China, what we're calling the great uncoupling. Okay, so vitally important, difficult to make, politically fraught. The sort of mind-bogglingness increases when you think about how to actually put that electrical circuit pattern on the silicon. The way that this is actually done is very, very secretive, but it's done with light, right? Yeah, so I think maybe the easiest analogy is, is, is photography. So if you imagine, you know, obviously it's not practical. You, you have to produce, you know, hundreds of thousands of these things a day. It's not practical to sit there with like a tiny, you know, scalpel or something and etch all the, all the patterns by machine. So what they do instead is you design the circuit. You effectively have a sort of big version of it. You shine light through, through a, a mask that has that big version of your circuit put on it. You focus it on this, this little tiny square of silicon. And because it's been treated with special chemicals, it's very, very like um, developing a photograph. They call it photolithography. You know, writing on stone with light is basically what that means. And the light comes through. It alters some of the chemicals and not others, depending on where the, the, the light falls. And then you do a whole bunch of other really complicated stuff. But that's the, the basic general idea. And then what you end up with is an absolutely teeny tiny version of your, your big pattern that's been etched by light beams on your on your hunk of silicon. I, I, lo- I love that way of thinking about it. Photographs that do maths for you, billions of them all the time, everywhere. This whole, this whole ridiculous business of printing photographs of electric circuits onto bits of melted sand, it's getting harder and harder. Why? So the main reason is that the smaller you can make them, the better they work. And that's, that's kind of for two reasons. So one is, you know, the, the smaller your little Lego bricks are, the more of them you can fit onto a chip of a given size, and that gives you a more powerful chip. And then the other reason is also that, that, that the smaller you shrink them, the better they work. So you get this kind of double whammy. You get more stuff, and the stuff that you have works better. So if you think about, you know, a mainframe computer from 19, the 1960s that's all like, you know, green text on a black background, and then you think about, you know, the PlayStation 5, the difference between those two things is almost entirely down to the fact that we keep figuring out new and cleverer ways to make things smaller and smaller and smaller. Because it's got harder and harder, that means it's got more and more expensive, more and more specialised. Um, and, you know, if you build a modern cutting-edge chip factory, you're not going to have a great deal of change from maybe 20 billion US dollars. It's driven this kind of split in the industry that didn't used to be there. The same company used to design the circuit and make the circuit on the silicon like we've been talking about. Um, But one of my recent obsessions is this Taiwanese company, TSMC, which stands for the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. One of the, if, if, if there was a ratio of imaginative naming to utility of corporation, I think TSMC would be sucking at that ratio. But everything else it does is kind of amazing. TSMC focuses just on manufacturing. It doesn't deal with design. The way it works is that you design your very complex pattern and you send it to TSMC essentially for printing. And if you're Apple, you do this. If you're pretty much anyone at this point who needs cutting-edge chips, you do this. And so TSMC has kind of become one of, if not the most important companies that are making, to go back to our original metaphor, these little informatic engines that, that power everything in the global economy. They've become extremely powerful in, in really just the course of about 10 years. What's become really important for a company like TSMC is actually protecting the way it does it. 
and keeping its, its processes secret. It's like Coca-Cola or Kentucky Fried Chicken. They have a secret sauce. Dick Thurston is a veteran lawyer of the chip industry. It's a matter of what are the gases used? What is the concentration? You know, what is the temperatures? You know, all these variants that go into a manufacturing, a customized product. Well, you don't want to hand that over to the world. Patents are publicly opened once they become, you know, issued. And uh, that means that ultimately when the patent expires 20 years later, then anybody else could take that technology, you know, theoretically, legally and go use it. So patents are time limited. Trade secrets are indefinite. Dick worked at Texas Instruments, an American chipmaker, for more than a decade before being brought in by TSMC in the early 2000s as the then unheard of company's chief lawyer. Almost immediately, he set to work dealing with an incident in which large amounts of information ended up in the hands of one of TSMC's competitors, SMIC, the Chinese chipmaking champion. Back at that point in time, you know, the philosophy of the foundries was what I call open kimono policy. They believed they had to provide everything open to the customers, the tool manufacturers from which they bought the equipment. And that would you know, enable them, and I think probably early on did enable them to, to grow. But as they developed more customized processes, which is what TSMC did well, there's no monitoring of employees. You know, the ability to, uh, before cell phones even, to go and download into hard disk, you know, to walk out the door after spending a whole Saturday photocopying 500 pages in one case of documents, right? It was very free and open. There was some physical security in the sense of your boundary around the property, but there were 10 drawbridges that were always left down and the front door open. So we started a very systematic approach to keep outside parties from hacking into the system. So they basically built an informatic fortress around all this precious knowledge. And the kind of loopholes they had to think to plug might sound kind of extreme. If you read science fiction, it's not fiction anymore. It is science. I remember when we first started putting in detectors that would you know, detect uh, metal, you know, which means also potentially chips that are being taken out and so forth. The metal detectors only basically went down to the ankle. So one smart person decided to hollow out the hill of their shoe and put stuff in there, you know, put a thumb drive basically in there. Of course, that <laughs> changed quickly. And this level of attention to detail goes all the way down to the plumbing. U.S. security agencies, uh, whether it's you know, FBI, you know, whether it's uh, Homeland Securities, they're all very interested in how secure the facilities are, just as the customers. And so they would share a lot of the tricks. And one of the things related to the water is that I was told when we were uh, building the first TSMC plant in Sungjiang, be very careful of where you know, you know, China water connection is is to the TSMC connection. You know, TSMC would handle all the construction very secretly, you know, on its own. But at some point in time, you know, water would be connected from a municipal source, basically. So they said at that point, they can put eavesdropping things and get certain information out of it that would, when added to other information, become very valuable. For companies operating at this level, navigating these kinds of demands from respective governments, they're walking a diplomatic tightrope as well. Keep in mind, 
Taiwan does not operate under diplomatic protection of the U.S. and many governments. There is no official, you know, ambassadorial, you know, recognition you know, level, right? So, you know, our challenge is also operating within that informal area. The U.S. has a strong presence in what they call AIT, you know, American Institute in Taiwan, and a big, you know, probably one of the largest and most secured de facto embassy compounds in the world. And because of that, it's also a listening post, you know, both ways, right? You know, China has all sorts of fishing boats and other boats going up and down the Taiwan Strait and all areas trying to monitor an eavesdrop on Taiwan. So when the world's most advanced semiconductor devices, and truly they are the most advanced, are being made in Taiwan, which has been a strong ally of the U.S. for you know, since, you know, really 49, you know, uh, that means that you have to take much more careful protection as the U.S. government is now perhaps more recognizing. Reminds me a bit of that time a couple of years back, Hal, where you uh, you literally got on your bike and, you know, had a cycle around one of TSMC's factories to see if you could see anything interesting. Yeah, well, um, no degree of sophistication, anything like the kind of thing that Dick is talking about protecting about, but it worked nonetheless. Uh, anytime I tried to approach any of the entrances, I was immediately shooed away by a security guard. Uh, and the whole thing is absolutely massive. It takes about 10 minutes to cycle around just one of the most advanced factories. The one I was interested in is called Fab 18. When I went to visit at the end of uh, 2019, it was um, in the process of, you know, at that moment, making the chips for the, the current generation of Apple's iPhones, the 12. That I had absolutely no, no hope of getting in. But one of the things that I did notice, and one of the things you notice when you wander around TSMC's campuses, is that even though they feel like sleepy industrial parks, because all of the cool stuff is on the inside of these ridiculous warehouses. But one way that they don't feel like that is that there are these gigantic, enormous electricity pylons everywhere. Kind of the only hint that something insane is happening in there. Yeah, and I think that the sheer sort of scale of their operations kind of tells you why they matter so much now. You can get a sense of its scale if you look at the financials. So uh, in April, it said um, it would spend $30 billion in capital expenditure uh, this year. Uh, that's just part of $100 billion in, in the next three years. And that's almost entirely on, you know, building and equipping these factories. It's sort of feeling pretty secure in its lead because it, it, it stopped cutting prices for its um, its slightly older factories as much as it used to. Uh, its operating income has been going up and up and up, 15% a year. Uh, it, it's it's really come to this point where it sits more or less unchallenged at the top of the, the manufacturing heap. And all of that success is, is, is balanced in this kind of functional geopolitical tension, which means that the vast majority of TSMC's actual asset base, it's all on the island of Taiwan between America and China and that's what we're going to talk about next. Coming up, we're going to get views from both Silicon Valley and from Shanghai on a company and an industry that is balanced between two centers of power, both political and computing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
TSMC has uh, always been very keen to say that it is the world's foundry. But I think we are now, we can be a little bit more skeptical of that claim. Dan Wong is an analyst at Gavical Dragonomics, a research firm based in Shanghai, and has been keenly following developments on both sides of the Pacific. I think it is uh, fairly obvious that TSMC has chosen the Americans' side. And I think that's uh, understandable for a few broad reasons. Uh, the first is that TSMC's American customers, in terms of companies like Apple and NVIDIA and Qualcomm, are still much bigger than what China is able to offer. And then the other big dependence that TSMC has is on uh, a lot of American tools. And so even though TSMC has said it is uh, the world's foundry, I think we can see that uh, in the past few months, TSMC has leaned a little bit closer to the Americans' position here. Tim, do you agree with Dan's assessment that TSMC is, you know, kind of leaning American at this point? Yeah, I think TSMC has has sort of benefited for a while um, from from you know being able to get business from from both sides, as it were. But increasingly, it's 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 choosing or having to choose to to side with the US. And if you look, they they said recently they would build um, a pretty advanced factory in Arizona, which will be one of the few TSMC factories that's not actually based in Taiwan. And so the place where all of these designs that TSMC is making from kind of originate, the wellspring of chip design, if you like, is a company called Arm, uh, which has its headquarters in Britain and which operates a little bit like a kind of semiconductor Switzerland. It speaks to everyone, it offers its designs to everyone, and the industry relies completely on Arm to provide these blueprints. I spoke to Dipti Vachani, who is in charge of ARM's automotive and Internet of Things businesses. She basically looks after all of the chips that ARM designs for cars and Internet of Things devices like smart speakers. Dipti spoke to us from San Jose in the heart of Silicon Valley. So think about anything with a brain that has a processor inside. ARM creates the processing and the IP that's inside of all of those things. Of course, the car, right? And you see the interface that we have in cars and the the increased automation, the increased electrification of cars. And as such, you can imagine that there's more silicon inside. In 2020, the overall cost of a car, 18% is semiconductor. By 2030, we expect that to be 45%. So it's, it's just exponentially growing. But then also think about your home and what's happening inside your home, whether it's your thermostat or your refrigerator or your AC machine. Think about factories, how things are manufactured, delivery, logistics, where your food source comes from. And when there's a disruption in that uh, supply channel, we're going to feel it. It's a quick data point. 2021, there was 8 billion uh, connected devices shipped. In 2035, we expect there to be 21 billion connected devices. So this dependency on semiconductors is only going to increase. ARM feeds its designs into what in the industry is called like the fabulous ecosystem. And what that means is that there are chip designers that buy specs from you. They buy in your designs and they kind of iterate on them and sort of customize them for either for themselves or for their further customers. And that is a very diverse highly competitive ecosystem, but there, someone also has to make the actual physical chips. And that's much more concentrated, especially at the cutting edge. I just wanted to ask, you know, when you look from your position there on the West Coast, out over the Pacific at TSMC having 84% of the cutting edge chip market, 
Is that a sort of structural concern for for you and your colleagues in the industry? Well, I mean, of course, the concentration of of manufacturing in in, in one area is is obviously a causes for vulnerability in the supply chain. And and the U.S. government was doing much more to to start to incentivize companies to build and and have our our factories here in the U.S. and help us more globally independent. So, yes, um, is it something that's going to shift overnight? Um, no, this is something that that is going to require investment and we're going to require focus from a lot of our companies. Now, let me let me also tell you that not all of our companies are fabulous, though. I spent the first almost 20 years of my career at Texas Instruments. Think of ST, think of Intel. A lot of companies themselves still have factories, and I don't believe that trend's completely going away either. You mentioned the American expansion of industrial policy. That's the CHIPS Act. Uh, President Biden's administration has announced a $50 billion government plan to revive domestic chip making, assuming that you know they take a long-term view, which to be fair, they do seem to be doing, what does that mean for ARM? You know, the countries have been doing this for quite some time. This is not you, right? Um, some of Intel's factories are in Ireland um, because of the incentives that Ireland gives um, for manufacturing. I think uh, overall, it, it is a positive move. It will um, have an impact, right? The If you think about the amount of automation in factories today, labor cost is becoming less and less of a variable um, in, in manufacturing. Um, it's still it's still a factor, but it's it's less of a factor. And so combine that with automation, with the incentives the United States is giving or or, or planning to do with this, I think in the long run, um, it is the right move. It isn't about being completely independent. It's about diversifying that supply chain. And, and complete independence is a a really good point to kind of harp on because I think on both sides of the, uh, you know, let's be frank, there is one US-China divide. There's a sort of myth of total independence. But can you explain to our listeners why is it impossible to to be independent? You you can imagine the components that were required for for an end system to come together. The amount of semiconductor that's required that comes from all aspects of the world. Some are manufactured at, at low process nodes to high process nodes. The variability is significant. Now, that's just in the semiconductor. Think about software, which is open. It does it knows no barrier, right? Global open source software, which ARM has is, is been a, a large uh, contributor to and a proponent of. People contribute to that software in China to, to contribute to the software in the US and we work collaborate together. It knows no barriers. And so with these um, technologies and innovations that are happening globally, holistically, to put any kind of divide and say it's only going to be within one country or, or I'm not going to be dependent on others' innovation is, is near impossible. It is not practical. The global divides aren't real. Tim, what do you think about this CHIPS Act? How much can that hope to achieve? In a way, this almost feels like a throwback to the, the 70s and 80s when you know microchips were brand new and the Americans and, and everyone really very much then treated them as a sort of strategic good, something with you know military importance and, and, and big strategic implications. It probably is impossible to you know, take this entire globe-spanning, super-specialized industry and squeeze it all into one country. But I think you can move the needle a bit and try and get at least some more bits of the supply chain back into the US. 
that's a really good point, Tim. And I actually spoke to Dan Wang of Gavacal about this earlier to get an understanding of what China's doing on this front. The first thing to note, Hal, is that self-sufficiency in semiconductors is a fantasy. It is a fantasy for any individual country, uh, even a country as large as the United States or China. And one just has to appreciate, first of all, that the semiconductor value chain is possibly the most complex in the world. You need a lot of wafers, as well as gases and chemicals from places like Japan, as well as uh, Korea and Europe. You need semiconductor production equipment, which is mostly American, as well as Japanese and European. And the way that I think about the Chinese ecosystem right now is that China is not leading in any of these sectors, uh, but China has built the position to have a uh, foundation to work with every single one of these segments. But then on the other side of the spectrum are much more di difficult technologies uh, indeed, and I don't see that China will figure out semiconductor production equipment anytime soon. It's not going to figure out uh, the software tools in anything like uh, a few months. Uh, perhaps it might do so in a few years from now. So given that, given that your assertion, and which I agree with, is that China can't bottle this and have it be a national thing, independent semiconductor production. What's the point of its program? Does it get some leverage by get, get, getting some footholds in some bits of the supply chain? Does, does it gain something from doing that? It must do, or else why bother? I think the uh, Chinese government has watched in anger as uh, U.S. actions uh, have labeled a lot of China's leading companies as national security risks and has uh, really kneecapped a lot of China's leading firms. And what we also see is that the uh, Chinese uh, entrepreneurial sector have become profoundly offended that they are labeled national security risks by the U.S. and then uh, facing some form of technology restriction against them. If you go down the list of China's um, most uh, important technology firms, I would cite names like Huawei, Alibaba, Tencent, ByteDance, uh, Xiaomi, SMIC. And every single one of these companies uh, have faced some sort of American sanction or the threat of one. Really, the only firm that hasn't uh, has been uh, Alibaba. In this case, it's Beijing that's decided to turn the screws. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of these firms are uh, afraid for their own safety of now depending on American supply. And so there is much more of a goal now to figure out and build up the Chinese domestic technology ecosystem. But there are ways to escape U.S. jurisdiction and those sanctions you talked about without necessarily building everything in your own country. You can just build things in countries over which America doesn't have jurisdiction. Am I right? Well, in some cases, we've seen firms, especially from Japan, come up and say, we are more reliable on the, than the Americans, uh, and Tokyo will never do these types of extreme export control actions. You should be buying Japanese, not American. And in some cases, we do also see that American companies have been more keen to talk up their offshore capabilities when uh, with semiconductor makers in places like Israel or Singapore. And perversely, a lot of U.S. export controls have uh, given this in increased incentive to offshore more production to place things out of American jurisdiction. But I think fundamentally, Beijing does not feel quite comfortable that there is this option there because after all, um, Japan, as well as Holland, are still treaty allies with the U.S. And so I think Beijing can never really feel safe until quite a lot more production capabilities are in the hands of domestic players. It seems to me an important question for the for the for how much attention we should all be paying to the, the geopolitics of semiconductors. 
to ask where on the curve of chip adoption and integration into the fabric of the world and society we in general are, the world is. And can you give us the, the, the view from China on where it feels like we are on that curve? Well, if you believe a lot of this 5G hype, then I think uh, the industry consensus is that there's going to be a lot more chips in everything. There's going to be uh, chips in my uh, pen. There's going to be chips in my traffic light. There's going to be chips in my coffee. There's just going to be chips uh, everywhere as far as the eye can see. If it were the case, well, this is one of these core uh, national security concerns that the U.S. government has had, that a lot of these chips will be enabled by Chinese technologies and not really American ones uh, over which the uh, Americans can have a little bit less control. I think the view from China is a bit more close to that of the national security hawks than they would like to admit. And in this case, I think the U.S. national security lobby is very correct to focus on this as a major issue. Okay, so Tim, I mean, based on based on what Dan is saying and and what you know about you know the the balance of power in this industry, how how do you how do you see things shifting in the next five years? I think there'll be a couple of interesting things to to keep an eye on. One is what happens at the at the sort of top end of the of the industry. So we've talked a lot about about TSMC. There are a couple of other companies at the moment that are sort of just about within touching distance of them. So uh, Samsung, they have their own foundry business, and they're they're sort of spending quite a bit of money and you see a lot of the big chip companies, you know, do at least some business with them. Um, and then there's Intel, which which for many years, you know, was the company at the leading edge. It, it, it was the TSMC of its day, if you like, except that it only made chips for itself. They've fallen behind in the last, uh, you know, maybe four or five years. I think it'll be really interesting to see if Intel can sort of rev itself back up and start to match TSMC's pace again. And particularly if they get you know, a bit of help from the uh, the American government to do that with sort of national security in mind. I was going to say that's exactly what that's exactly what the the American government wants. One of the things I've been wondering while I've been making this is kind of a version of how how much does this matter? But it's about if chips are going to do way more work in the economy going forward, then it's only become going to become a more important, more volatile issue, right? I, I think that's right. You know, this is a world that we already live in. We're just going to live in it even more. I think what's interesting about the, the IoT side of things is that, you know, you don't necessarily always need absolutely bleeding edge performance for this stuff. And so there is a whole like long tail of other chip making companies that aren't TSMC or Samsung or Intel. And it'll be interesting to see whether any of this strategic rivalry kind of trickles down. And I do think looking at it, that there is some degree of symbolism to the cutting edge and who controls it and who has access. For me, one of the big questions is, you know, the, the, the rival superpowers, they haven't messed with TSMC directly so far, but the game is ramping up. America has put export controls on machines that TSMC needs that means that the company can't actually serve Chinese customers anymore. If, you know, it's sort of, it serves those customers at the beneficence of the American government. And to my mind, the question is if, uh, if TSMC's importance keeps growing, then, you know, there may come a moment when either China or America decides that uh, it's too valuable to be left alone. Thank you so much for listening to Babbage. Our thanks as well to Dick Thurston, Dipti Vachani and Dan Wang, and of course, our very own Tim Cross. This show is really just a taste of the amazing reporting and analysis that goes into every single issue of The Economist. So if you are not a subscriber yet, there 
has not ever been a better time. We've got a special offer for all of you listeners at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes as well for this episode. So find it there. Um, While you're with us, please don't forget to leave us a rating or better yet, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. It really does make a world of difference to us. The producer was Amika Shortino Nolan. The assistant producer was Abasoye Oshendero. And the editor was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Hal Hodson, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.